I want to start from what you mentioned to me yesterday, solastalgia. Solastalgia, yeah. What the hell is that? <laughs> solastalgia is, it's, I love that it's an Australian coined um, term. There's a philosopher named Glenn Albrecht. I believe he's from New South Wales, actually. But he basically used it as a term to correlate a phenomenon of feeling homesick without one ever leaving their home because their environment is changing so rapidly around them. This is Jason Twill. Jason is an innovation fellow in the School of Architecture at the University of Technology, Sydney. And recently, Jason has become fascinated by the concept of solastalgia. It's a feeling that's the opposite of nostalgia. It's a psychic or existential dread that the environments we live in, the environments we love, our homes, might completely change and become unrecognisable. Have you felt it? I did feel that in New York City. I actually found out a term from Sia Furler. I love Sia Furler. I loved her when she was Sia on, the singer. Sia the singer. The Australian singer. Yeah, yeah. But she was at zero she was with Zero Seven and I love Zero Seven. She was like the frontline singer for them years ago before she went solo. And in her early solo album there was a, either an album title or a song called Solastalgia. And I looked up the term and I was like, Oh, that's kinda how I felt in New York. What does solastalgia feel like to you or what did it feel like when you were in New York? So I've been in, you know, in and around New York since I was a kid. I lived in Manhattan for about a decade, you know, and I saw these rich heritage neighborhoods changing, density, glass towers going up everywhere. My wife and I and my eldest son were living in the Upper West Side. So where you once had local entrepreneurs and local businesses where you knew people, local grocery store might be, you suddenly all the, you had this kind of recipe of a, a cell phone store a Starbucks, a bank, a pharmacy, and then another block would be a cell phone store, a bank, a pharmacy, a Starbucks. And it was kind of this franchise where just, you know, it felt like artificial. There was a place called Big Nick's on the corner of my uh, apartment where we lived in the Upper West Side. And um, it had been there for like something like 54 years, 24 hours a day, joint. The, basically, the stoves never turned off, and they had the best burgers. Like, I love the fact that I could fly into New York from the West Coast and arrive at 1 o'clock in the morning and have dinner right across the street. You know, I just love that. Um, and it's gone. It's like there's there's got to be ways that we protect the cultural heritage of places. I like to think of cities as never-ending novels. Right? Every, you're writing a new chapter all the time. But it needs to have a consistent theme. You have to have some kind of cultural memory and a story that continues to evolve over time. And I feel like the way that we just plop down glass towers that really don't have any local architectural vernacular, it seems like it's, uh, we're losing the plot in those stories of our cities right now. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. When Jason began feeling solastalgic about the New York he once knew compared to the new New York around him, it wasn't just because his environment was changing. It was because this made the future uncertain. Which of his favourite restaurants would go next? 
how many more tall buildings would tower over the city in five years? And amongst all this change, would that at some point force him to move? In his work, Jason is looking at how the rapid pace of urban development may not only result in a loss of sense of place, but the ability for many to live in cities. As urban epicentres become more densely populated, more built up, more lively, they ultimately become more expensive. And not everyone can keep up. Think about this topic, not only of franchisation of cities, but wankerization. (laughs) Because you almost have this new phenomenon of everything's geared towards the highest end of the market, right? And you have this massive gap. You have the government involved in social housing to kind of incentivize and subsidize affordability for a certain segment of our society. Then you have this luxury open market. This huge void in the middle that I fell within was I couldn't qualify for affordable housing, but I certainly couldn't afford, you know, luxury market rate apartments for two million bucks. So there's this gap. And there's this kind of migration happening. All those people that are priced out, I call them urban refugees. And if everything's catered toward the luxury end of the market, you're starting to see the emergence of these new urban ghettos or ghettos of the rich. And that's what I mean about this inverse relationship between gentrification and speculative development and the cultural capital of cities. You start to erode. if You, you can't keep artists. You can't keep creatives. You can't keep these key knowledge sector workers that, are, that cities are relying on to drive their economies forward. It's, it's a challenge that cities are going to have to deal with. They have to solve the housing issue. Do you draw any parallels between what you've been talking about in New York and what's happening in Sydney? Oh, absolutely. It's more acute here. There are tremendous opportunities to do affordable housing and mixed income developments, which I'm a huge fan of. My career has been premised on sustainable mixed income housing. And what is that? Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so it's a combination of having market rate housing, moderate rate housing, and below market, like social housing. Sydney is even a more expensive city. The problem is that Sydney is great, right? It's a beautiful city. Look at its, its where its geography of the city is gorgeous. You're on the water, the weather's great, so there's a, a huge demand not just locally, but globally. People want to come down here. It's safe. Like, I'm I'm from New York. I was in Seattle for six years. I feel really good being in Sydney right now, given what's happening in the world. I feel safe. I'd be nervous to live in Paris. I'd be nervous to live in London. I'd be nervous to live in New York. My wife and I are both survivors of the 9-11 terrorist attack. We were in Tower 2, so we have this kind of reflection of what it's like to be in one of the situations in those cities. And I just feel removed from that here. The idea that people, like my kids can grow up and not have concerns about gun violence in the schools. Pretty uh, tangible for me, valued for me. But with all that demand and population increase, knowing that urban land is a finite resource puts tremendous pressure on competition for space, be it competition for space for learning with our higher education and lower education institutions, for housing, for office space, for recreational space, and all that pressure gives uplift on the value of land. And if we don't have the right mechanisms and tools that government can have at disposals to temper the value of that land, you just it's, it's all that flows through the cost of housing. You also have this strange incentive to overconsume housing with neg- negative gearing. 
I don't quite understand. I know it's a very contentious issue, but to me, as an outsider coming here and living here for four years, the fact that you're incentivized to buy a second home, you know, like the house is probably the biggest expense you're ever going to get in your life. And then being incentivized to buy a second one, because <laughs> there's a high environmental and social cost of buying a house. And it's like you're over, you're cons- over consuming housing um, in an effort to create individual wealth, which is great. Everyone should be able to create wealth. But I think it's creating perverse outcomes. I think there's uh, side effects to that model that we're seeing now. There's a whole cohort of people that can't afford to get in the market. Me. And I don't think I'll ever be able to get onto the market. And I guess that presents another issue of the fact that the only property that I might be able to afford when I'm looking to buy a house, I'm not at that point yet, would be somewhere so far removed from these urban epicenters. I'd have to look out to somewhere like Newcastle. I would even have to look beyond that, or I'd have to wait for my parents to unfortunately pass away so that their house is given to me. Are you scared for your children in that respect, that perhaps they will be facing the same problems I am, that maybe they won't be able to get one at all? I'm not driven by wealth creation. I'm driven by quality of life. And there's other models out there to kind of address this issue. And you can't just look at housing is a housing issue. It's completely interdependent on the health of the overall economy of a city. If we can't keep people like yourself here doing amazingly great work on radio and and getting thought-provoking dialogue out there in the world and you have to move to Wollongong or, you know, some other decentralized city, those cities are loving it, right? In the U.S., that migration pattern has been happening for decades, right? So my generation all had kids and we got priced out of New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, And we all kind of migrated to cities like Seattle or Portland or Austin, Texas, Pittsburgh, Denver. All those cities had great quality of life, but they were a lot cheaper to live in. From New York to Seattle, for me, it was a 30% lower cost of living. Mm -hmm. And all my friends who were in San Francisco migrated from San Francisco to Seattle. So all of a sudden, I had all my friends. We're all having kids. We could all buy places. We can go on vacation because my cost of living was dramatically different. I could buy a four-bedroom house for half a million bucks versus, you know, a tiny two-bedroom and far away, and you know, the far end of Brooklyn for one point two million. But that pattern of gentrification and that migration impact in the U.S. Seattle's been people are priced. I think the medium home price in Seattle is a million now. So it's it's recreating itself, and that spillover effect can work in the U.S. because they have fifty some odd cities to choose from. Right, there's lots of choices. Here, you have a half a dozen cities. The spillover into decentralized cities is good, I think, for the economy in, in each of the states. But more often, I hear people are not actually just moving to Newcastle or Geelong and Melbourne or Fremantle somewhere else in Perth or outside of Brisbane. They're moving overseas. And every time I do a talk on this issue, parents in the room raise their hand and they're like, yeah, my son just moved to Berlin or my daughter just moved to Singapore or my son's moving to Austin, Texas. You know, like there's this draw. So cities need to be really forward thinking about how they retain the people that they need to keep to drive the economy forward. Um, so it's not just housing. It's a work issue. It's, an, it's a total economic issue. I literally became a developer and was inspired to become a developer because of Trump, because I could not stand seeing his gaudy luxury billboards all over New York. <laughs> My wife and I would be walking down the street like, who can afford these places? Why is everything luxury? Like, where's the middle stuff? Like, missing middle. 
So we call ourselves the forgotten ones because we're just stuck in the middle, right? <laughs> so you're talking about these different models. Can you explain to me how these models can actually be brought into action? Like, what is the implementation method here of... Catering? Alternative models? Yeah. So my private business, and what I teach this uh, here in a, a concept I call collaborative urbanism, which is looking at city-making in the age of the sharing economy. How can new, econo- new economic models, new ways of looking at land ownership, new housing typologies, new ways of getting around the city can basically bring about a system of affordable living, not just housing, but it's how we move, how we eat, how we play, how we learn, how we sleep at night, like looking at the whole spectrum of our urban living. There are examples of what we call deliberative housing models. You have a group of people that have an aspiration to live in a more sustainable manner. They want to live together in a community and feel socially connected. The first such modern concept of that kind of communal living was co-housing. 1967, a group of people in in Denmark and Copenhagen, I think just outside of Copenhagen, read an article in a local paper, and the, the author of the article had a statement in there that children should be raised by 100 parents. And they're like, that's... We want that. We feel that. That's the truth in, our, in the way we think about how we want to raise our kids. And they got together and they created the, what they, was called the first modern co-housing project. I think it's called Set and Damen. And that inspired a whole generation of people to look at new ways of living. A group of people, maybe 30 to 40, 50 people, got together. They pulled their money together, acquired land, hired an architect, and designed their own community. Those communities have private residences. Some of them are low-scale single-family dwellings. Some of them might be three- or four-unit apartment projects. But the general theme of a co-housing project are people living in a communal way, meaning they have a, usually have a central lounge and a kitchen where everyone gets together and has a meal once or twice a week. There's shared responsibility around maintaining gardens, landscaping, cleaning. There's a couple that was studying this, they're from the U.S., and they brought the story of this project back to the U.S., and it kind of went like wildfire, mainly in the retiree community. The kind of uh, war generation started retiring, and the prospect of them being empowered to define their own way of living after their careers um, was really inspirational to them. Instead of just going into these kind of retirement village products where you just have a you're fenced off age-restricted community and aged care and all this stuff. These people want to take their retirement lifestyle in their own hands and got to get together a group of friends, maybe family, and created their own senior co-housing projects across the U.S. When we come back, millennials, and why more and more are looking to co-housing models, because we have to. If you look at it almost like a disease... This generation is inventing new ways of living almost as an immune response to it. Stick around. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. 
You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. We're going to jump back into our chat with Jason Twill about alternative models for housing and chat about some of those who are struggling the most when it comes to home security. Millennials are faced with this challenge in a major way of how they house themselves in cities. And I think the affordability crisis, if you look at it almost like a disease, this generation is inventing new ways of living almost as an immune response to it. So they're looking at different ways of essentially colonizing older buildings and looking at what we call co-living, which is more of a modern next-generational thinking on co-housing. Co-living models that millennials are doing might be membership-based, so they're not kind of stuck with a long-term lease. It's really good for people that are migratory for their work if they travel a lot. You have a membership to a a co-living community. There's one in Brooklyn and Williamsburg called The Commons, where you have common lounges, maybe some bars, there's apps so you can get like house cleaning, food delivered, whatever it is. It's a highly curated environment to make living in the city easier so you can focus on your, your work and developing your social network in the city, so to speak. The Commons was a prototype, and off the back of that, a model was created called the Nightingale Housing Model, which is essentially an architect-led development model, um, which really likes to look at how we create more creative beautiful, culturally and historically contextual housing models for cities. So you can actually look at a vernacular of housing and architecture for Melbourne, for Sydney. So you don't get that loss of sense of place. You actually see the story of Sydney evolving and changing through the the urban landscape, so to speak. What you were saying there sounds kind of like short-term living, right? You wouldn't necessarily live in one of these common places for forever, Are there any kind of like long-term practical solutions here to be like, well, this sort of living could be applicable for maybe not just a couple of months, maybe not just a couple of years, but 20 years? Yeah. I should preface that co-living is more temporary living. And I think it's better suited, again, to kind of what I call global nomads. They might be creatives who are kind of not wedded to a workplace but can travel the world and consult and do things. And they might want to have temporary housing in many cities. Co-housing is meant to be much more permanent in nature, especially affordable in nature. And there is a land procurement model called community land trusts. It's basically a cooperatively owned land model tenure where a community group comes together, partners with government, acquires land, and they own that land in a trust. And that trust is headed by a board of directors, one-third of which is made up of the residents that will be on that site, one-third is made up of the businesses that would be on that site, and a third might be professionals like architects, engineers, or tax attorneys, or lawyers. The beauty of that is it's the land is held in commons. The buildings, homes, and businesses are owned privately, so everything on top. So it separates land and building, and it creates a permanent affordable solution for both retail entrepreneurs and for sale and rental housing. And that is definitely a more permanent solution, meaning if you buy a home, you're buying it based on your income level. And if you want to pass that on to your children, you can. If you want to sell it, you can sell it for a limited profit based on any money you put into the unit to improve it. But a chunk goes back to the trust to maintain affordability and stewardship of that community as it grows. Do you see people turning to more models like this, turning to different co-housing models or or different 
environments in which you live? Do you see do. people picking that up? And if so, do you see that being a choice or being forced into having to look elsewhere to live? No, I think it's an actual better choice. When I interview people, there's, there's a huge issue right now for urban apartment living, especially new apartment living. There's an issue of social isolation, especially in seniors. We're living in very dense urban environments, and there's, there seems to be a lot of anonymity. And when I engage a lot of people that are looking for a housing solution of your age demographic, even people in their early 20s and people in their 70s, they want to feel more socially connected. They want to be in a place where they're not one of 200 people, but maybe one of 40 units. They want to feel like the scale of development is really important. And co-housing kind of always is in that kind of 40-person kind of community. So on bigger urban developments, you might look at what we call a micro-village. You have clusters of these. So I think there's, a more, there's more demand for this. I think the more people are aware that the alternate models exist out there, so I think there's a gap in what the market, speculative development, is delivering out there and what people actually want from an urban housing model. You get the beauty of having your privacy, but you have degrees of privacy. You can choose to engage your community. You might have a little co-working space in the building. You might have a centralized kitchen. But if you're living in a 45-square-meter unit, you have a smaller kitchen. If you want to have a holiday party or a gathering of friends, I had that issue in New York in a 40-square-meter apartment. I can only have, like, one couple over. That was it because we had, like, a micro-kitchen. But if I had a centralized kitchen that I could reserve and have a holiday party with, like, 20 people, I would love that, love that. In the future, like, 30% of our building will be shared space and communal space. And there's just fills in this kind of void, and it gives people a, more choices of how they can live in cities. People might want to be in the luxury penthouse apartments overlooking the upper house all the time. We need to have that as part of our economy, but we need to have also this missing middle housing solution. And I think there's different delivery models that government, planning agencies, everyday people can have a choice in how they want to live. I think there's ways that we can engage those models now. Jason Twill, Innovation Fellow from the School of Architecture at the University of Technology, Sydney. This has been Think Sustainability. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, we're available as a podcast. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you listen to your podcasts. This show is supported by the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. Catch you next week.